Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 145, and our movie this week is a Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And joining me, because somehow, some way, he'd never seen this movie before, it's David Luzader. David, how are you? Oh, I am doing well. I'm here from the Nostalgia Cave, uh, which is funny that I caught that, and then I'm here talking about the movie <laughs> that so many have nostalgia for, and I've, uh, I've never seen. Yes, it's true. Went 33 years uh, without laying out. I mean, I knew... You know, this movie is so in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. that, like, I felt like I knew everything, but watching it uh, was quite a surprise because it did not play out story-wise how I thought it was going to. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because this movie played so it plays so often around the holidays every year on mm-hmm. uh, a cable network somewhere. Yeah. That it's kind of one of those you like you almost accidentally run into. It's like finding somebody who's never seen, even in like bits and pieces, all of a Christmas story. It, it amazes right. me just because like that movie just plays for 24 hours mm-hmm. in a row. Like, but yeah, was it a, was it the type of thing where you just sort of never really felt like watching it or it didn't seem like it would be entertaining to you? I mean, what was the reasoning behind having never seen it? Uh, you know, growing up, um, it, it, my family didn't watch it. It was just not a movie that we watched. Okay. And so when the holidays would come around and I'm like, oh, what movies am I going to watch? You know, the ones you gravitate towards typically are the ones that you saw like as a kid or you have these like strong memories with. Sure. And I just had never seen this. So I never really like put it on. Um, I wasn't really going to like, you know, special showings of movies uh, like which I do all the time now with Alamo. And I would probably do with something like this. Um, but it was just... You know, didn't grow up with it, didn't have a draw towards it, so it was just easy to not watch. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that for sure. It's it's interesting because it really is it's a it's a, a holiday classic, yet it's not really a Christmas movie either. Like yeah. it's almost die hard before die hard, where it's the Christmas movie <laughs> that is set around Christmas but really has nothing to do with the holiday in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, so, I think that we don't actually see Christmas until an hour and a half into this movie. Yeah, and even then, we're we're only at Christmas Eve. We never actually see right. Christmas Day. Um, so, true. so you mentioned how this is really part of the zeitgeist, and you're right. Like this movie has been either paid tribute to, or parodied, or the the plot device is used in countless television series. Um, as uh, you know, there's so many series that will have their "It's a Wonderful Life" episode, where yeah, and and it's yeah, yeah, and 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 it's interesting because as I'm watching the movie again and I'm I'm thinking about it, I'm like, boy, I'm curious to know how David's going to take because everybody kind of knows that part, but that's like the last half hour of the movie, yeah, the part that everyone knows. So so kind of walk me through like what was it like watching this movie and and kind of how did it unfold for you? 
well, I thought this movie, I thought this movie was primarily, you know, I thought it opened on Christmas Eve, which it kind of does. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was going to be, you know, George Bailey, I knew had big financial fallout and uh, considers suicide. And I thought that was going to happen within like the first half. You know, we'd, we'd establish the world a bit half hour in. OK, I'm going to try and kill myself. Next hour is, oh, let's see life if you were never born. Uh, but really, it's an hour and a half of building up of George's life and all of uh, not his failures, but all of his failed attempts to get out of um of bedford falls i think it's called yep um how he like feels stuck there but he's also like the hero of this town and then the last half hour is like the famous scene so there was stuff in here because i just didn't know how the the plot went um i didn't realize i had known before like uh there's a scene in the simpsons when I, th- I think the school, the teachers are on strike, so the kids are just out all day. And Bart goes to the bank, and he starts going around being like, oh, I, I hear they've run out of money. Um, and so the people start panicking. Mm, yep. And the teller, who sounds like Jimmy Stewart, uh, goes like, no, 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 your money's in Bill's house and, and, and his house. Yeah. Um, and I had never I had never heard that line, so I didn't know that was it. I, I knew like it sounded like Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't have any. I thought it was just somebody doing a voice which it was, but I, I thought it was just somebody like, oh, you know, it'd be kind of funny if I talked like Jimmy Stewart. I didn't yeah. realize it was a <laughs> reference to this movie. Yeah, it, it's funny how that's that's done because everybody knows that last half hour. Everybody knows the, oh, this is what the world was like without George Bailey, right? Or mm-hmm. in without insert character here in whatever parody or homage or tribute or just blatant ripoff of this formula they're using. But you're right. It's an hour and a half of building this up, and it, it's kind of a sad story. In a lot of ways. Is. And it's it's weird because the movie is very uplifting material at uh, at a certain point. But what it does for the first hour, hour and a half is just beat you down with this man who at every turn in his life has had to make a decision one way or the other. And he always chooses someone else. And he always puts off his thing, even though it's from the very beginning, it's what he wants is to to travel the world and build all these big things from, you know, a 10 year old kid, 12 year old kid. That's what he wants. Mm-hmm. And he never yeah. gets it. And it's so rough to, to yeah. watch. He has a he has a subscription to National Geographic, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, was a, was a not a, a now you can pick them up for nothing. But, you know, him, he's like, this is a badge of honor that I'm I going on all this like all these trips but you're right like just something always comes up and it's kind of you know it's kind of like his dad was too his dad was always given everything and he kind of has this resentment towards his dad uh and except that he becomes just like his dad giving up everything to keep the town going um i do think it gets really heavy at times absolutely i do think the ending message um is really nice the the no man is a failure uh spoilers for the end of the movie um no man is a failure who who has friends. Um, I thought was a really nice message and a, a great way to uh, kind of top this off. I think it like it, you know, that could have that could have been a really bad line or and it's cheesy, but it's like a good cheesy. It's like, oh, okay, that's yeah. what you want me to take away from this is like, be thankful for the people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought like that that really worked uh, as like a as a cap to all of it because it could have easily been like well George is going to stay here again and he feels still like a failure again and that's just his life yeah it, it, so this movie was um Jimmy Stewart's first movie post World War II 
So he had he had done his service and he came back, and this was his first Hollywood movie after that, and and you know so the those themes kind of fit too for a country that's sort of recovering from this this incredible event uh, that took place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love that. It is cheesy. The end of the movie is cheesy, but you're right in that it's the good kind of cheesy. It's the feel good. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, okay, it's a little bit cheesy, but yeah, it's it's a great message. Like this guy who thought that he wasted his life, that he lost his opportunities at all, is real comes to realize how much his family means to him. I mean, I always think that like you, I always remember the movie as having more of the time where he's not he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And it's because that those moments are so impactful in the movie. After spending an hour and a half learning about his life and seeing all these things that happen, not only the selfless acts he did. I mean, he's, you know, he saves his brother's life. He saves mm-hmm. the the druggist from going to prison for poisoning somebody over in his yeah. grief. Like all these things that he does, and and all these wonderful relationships that he makes with people. And then mm-hmm. to see him have to go around this town now called Pottersville where none of that exists and nobody knows who he is and they just look at him like he's got lobsters crawling out of his ears. Uh-huh. And, is, and there's, great. you know, loose morals now. Yeah. It's the, the whole town is completely different all because George Bailey wasn't there to help, you know, and his the the, the building and loan, I, I kind of love that idea too of like this community. Now, I did think it was really funny that after the movie came out, there were... Um, FBI analysts that tried to decry the movie as uh, as a communist propaganda film <laughs> because the villain was a banker and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think, I don't remember if it was the MPAA or the Supreme Court, or, pardon me, um, whoever it was, the, the FBI kind of wanted the movie to not get distributed and they were just like, yeah, no, we're going to, the movie's going out. Like, it's fine. Um, because it... Yeah. I, I can see why they would think that, but it's also it's totally not that. Like, Well, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I still hype, like, the Cold War is just starting. It's just mm-hmm. post-World War II. There's yeah. that fear. So this idea that, like, oh, the best man in town is somebody who selflessly helps others, and they're like, oh, oh this sounds <laughs> like communism. Exactly. Um, and, um, I, and I haven't looked too much into... Um, the reason, so I know it was panned when it was released. It was a it was a failure. Um, critics did not really like it. Was it was it because of sort of those same reasons? Is that something that you know a bit more about, or was it just people didn't think it was very good? So the the reviews when it came out were somewhat mixed. It it's viewed as a failure, but partly it's because it was expensive. This movie cost $3.7 million to make in 1946. Oh, that is expensive. It made 3.3. It was the 26th highest ranking uh, box office film of, of 1947. Um, and and that's out of like 400 films. But $3.7 million to, to make it uh, was not cheap. They, they built that whole set. The town um, oh, was a set they built on a, on a lot in California. And like the main street was 300 yards long. It was three city blocks and they had all those storefronts and they had like all this kind of stuff that they did. So, um, even the, the Bailey, um, uh, where all the houses were built, the little like Bailey park, Bailey park. Yeah. That was another set that they used and they, they built up and, uh, that's since become a town in California. Um, (laughs) but like, 
so it wasn't a cheap movie to make whatsoever. And the reviews were, were okay. Like critics didn't hate it, but they didn't love it either. And it did, it did really well in its premiere. It premiered in, in New York. Um, but then just sort of wasn't, wasn't like super widely, uh, loved, but it was about 30 years later. Yeah. I I love this story, by the way. This is one of my favorite, favorite movie stories. Yeah. So about 30 years later, the, the, um, movie had changed hands a couple of times in some buyouts of studios. And one of the studios through a clerical error forgot to renew the copyright. So they still had, they still had the copyright for the original published short story that the film was based on, but -hmm. they didn't have the, uh, the copyright for the film. So it started getting picked up by a lot of local stations and played every year. And that's where its popularity really grew. And I love there was a quote from Frank Capra, the director, who was like, it's like having a child that becomes president where I'm proud of it, but it's kind of not my thing anymore. It sort of did it on its own. Like, he's like, I don't really have anything to do with the film being popular now because it's so long after I made it. But it's just it's such a cool story. So it slipped like that. And then for about 20 years or so, almost, um, it was... (sighs) Not public domain, but it wasn't really owned by anybody either. It was real murky. They could show it for free or dirt cheap. Yeah. So they, so they would, uh, they would just play it and like, they basically had to pay for, um, it was the derivative work royalties for the published Mm -hmm. story. And that was it. So it played everywhere and all sorts of local stations would play it. And, and eventually it, uh, it got bought and now I think it is Viacom that owns it. Uh, Paramount, which is funny because Paramount had nothing to do with the original picture. It was an mm-hmm. RKO, um, mm-hmm. yep. RKO pictures. And uh, but yeah, it's such a cool story because this movie just took on a life of its own. So this this movie that because it got Oscar consideration, it was nominated for five Academy Awards. It lost all five yeah. of them. Um, but you know, and Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart had worked together a few years earlier on uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and they'd done a couple other movies together. Capra had done a ton um that guy in he he went through a stretch where he was doing all sorts of documentaries during mm-hmm. world war ii so if you look at his imdb he has in 1943 43 through 45 he's got like almost a dozen different uh documentary documentary shorts that he did during oh, yeah. world war ii and um there was also not only the movie, but there were some radio versions of uh, It's a Wonderful Life that were done that Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed came back and did uh, years later, like four or five years later. So there's different versions of it. I think in the radio version, instead of taking the flower petals and putting them in his pocket, he has like a little bell because obviously radioed, you need something to, oh, right. something audible. You I'm can't... putting these in my pocket. Now. Exactly. Um but yeah, it's it's pretty cool the story of how this went. And uh, now I watched the version on um, uh, Amazon Prime. It's streaming on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime right now. There's two versions. There's a black and white and a colorized. Um, don't watch the yes. colorized version. <laughs> this, this movie was shot in black and white, and it should stay in black and white. The colorized version. I think Jimmy Stewart had the the line of saying the colorized version because th- they started that in the '80s. Um, and right. there's actually a little story behind that too, but. He he said the colorized version looked like an Easter egg, like a painted <laughs> egg. 
Yeah, um, they, they overcompensated on a lot of those colorized versions. And it's mm-hmm. like, you really want to see the the rosy colors of, of Jimmy Stewart's cheeks. And it's like, no, make him look like a normal human being. Yes, please. Um, so, and the colorized version, originally, Frank Capra was supposed to help, I think, invest some money in colorizing the film, but he was also going to have some kind of creative control over how that went until the color, uh, the company that was doing it, colorists or something like that, realized that because of the, the murky sort of who owned the movie thing, they could just do it what, however they wanted and not have to involve him. And so mm-hmm. he was really upset with how it turned out. And yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not worth watching. Watch the black and white version. Uh, it's so much better. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the one that, that I watched and when I've seen like clips over the year, um, or the years I've, I've seen it in, in black and white as well. And I think it's funny that you talk about like the colorized, uh, trend of like the eighties. Cause I think people have this romantic view of older generations of film like ah, they never did gimmicks like now you know <laughs> they try to do all these re-releases and they you know again the early 2000s it was like all these 3d conversions it's like no it's technology involved evolved they you know they wanted to try like okay can we get people to pay money to see it's a wonderful life if it's in color now exactly i mean 3d's been around forever and they've tried that's tried how many different times to get going. Colorization was the big one, though. Take all these movies, because once people start getting color TV sets at home and color projection, right. you know, you, they want to see their new movies in color. And and really, if you're not, uh, if it's not Wizard of Oz going Technicolor, like just leave it alone. Right. Yeah. If the film's not not shot in color, I like my favorite story about that. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Is Some Like It Hot. Uh, Some Like It Hot is a mm-hmm. fantastic film. Yes, it um, is. But that came out during the era of colored films. And they were going to shoot it in color, but the makeup they had to use to uh, for um, the two leads, whose names are completely slipping me at the moment, uh, looked really blue in color, like to cover up their stubble. You could, yep. like see the stubble kind of pushing through. So they, they had to shoot that in black and white to make it look good. And it, it paid off, though. Also, I saw that in 4K in theaters. Um, and my favorite part of that was seeing there's a scene where Marilyn Monroe is supposed to be riding a bike down some stairs and it's very clearly a man. <laughs> um, it wasn't Marilyn Monroe, Ace, Ace Tigress three in the chat says Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis. It's Tony Curtis and the other guy who, who dress up as women. I'm, I'm just blanking on names right now, which I should know them. Uh, something uh, like it. hot. That's not Jack Lemon, is it? I think I believe it is. Jack yeah. It's Lemon. Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. And that was the thing is like makeup for a black and white film is inherently different than doing makeup for a color film. Uh, Lighting is going to be very different for black and white versus color. And that's Mm -hmm. why you can sometimes like Logan was a film that came out a couple years ago that they did a black and white version of. Um, They call it Logan Noir, I think, where they just regraded it black and white. You can usually do that. It's not going to be exactly the same, but you can get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. but, but taking a black and white film, especially something that was shot, you know, pre kind of digital and pre a lot of the technological advances we have in terms of post-processing film, it's harder mm-hmm. to do, um, because of just those limitations. Like you're just not shooting it that way. It's, right. it would be like somebody going through and colorizing Dr. Strangelove. Like that would throw me off completely because that movie needs yeah, to be in black be... and white. That'd be strange. That's another uh, another movie I've never seen. Uh, we'll uh, throw it on the list. Yes, a future episode we will do. Um, 
so Jimmy Stewart in this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jimmy Stewart was yeah. fantastic in just about everything he did, but there, like, he's got this. So the film takes place in Bedford, uh, fictional town of Bedford Falls, New York. And, mm-hmm. um, it was, the, I think the name was an amalgamation of a couple of small towns in upstate New York. They reference, uh, Rochester and a couple of other places in New York state. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jimmy Stewart is from a small town of Indiana, Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. Donna Reed is from a small town in Iowa. So having your two leads be from small towns, I think helps, especially at this point, because it's a very natural feel to everything. Um, and mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart in ter- in general just has this great kind of natural ability to just feel like an everyman. Um, he also, I think the costuming looked great. Like his suits just looked awesome. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Jimmy Jimmy Stewart's one of those guys where he um he has he has some range. He can do some great acting, but that voice of his is like very noticeable. So it's always mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, it's it's Jimmy Stewart. And uh but what what Jimmy Stewart does, Jimmy Stewart Stewart does very well. Oh, he's uh, even you know, said yeah, that. Yeah. I I think there was a quote from him saying like, I I don't get into big characterizations. I just play different variations of myself. Like I'm just James Stewart playing James Stewart. And right. but it works. You know, some actors do that. Um and when you can when you can do that effectively, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have to have right. every actor be Daniel Day Lewis and just disappear into a role. You know, yeah, it, it feels more authentic when that feels like the actual person. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we couldn't have seen Jimmy Stewart in The Godfather, uh, no. and you know, doing doing those lines with that voice, it would have would have totally changed the film. No, um, it but like have been Mr. Very... Smith goes to yeah. <laughs> it's been very weird um, to hear like I, I'm 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 gonna make him an offer that he can't refuse. Uh, he can't can't refuse. <laughs> now I kind of want to see that movie. Though, I sort of do. Talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got the technology now. We can make that happen. There Deep we go. fake it. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's he plays George in a way where like because George is is essentially trapped in this town. Every time he tries to leave, something happens, and. Mm-hmm. And he does the right thing every time, mm-hmm. uh, even though he has so many opportunities to get out of it, um, whether it is, you know, leaving for college and, and then the whole thing. I loved the scene with the, the Charleston and everything at the high school oh, dance yeah, that goes great. on. Um, mm-hmm. And it just it <laughs> that felt like a scene where they weren't quite sure how to end it. So they just had everybody start jumping into the pool, uh, jumping in the pool. Right. It's like, like uh, does everyone like be like, oh, no, uh, no, nope, let's just go with the hokey. Everyone's jumping in. It's like, OK, sure. Also, pretty great engineering uh, marvel to have in the 1940s of that uh, yeah, floor that could uh, open opening. up like that. Yeah. That was a an actual that was the Beverly Hill, one of the Beverly Hills high schools um, that had that. I thought that mm. was really cool. Uh, but like, you know, that happens. And then he's having this great moment with Mary. And then his father has a major stroke. You know, so so there's there's like and that's not the first thing that happened to him. But no, that's the first one that sort of stopped him in his tracks of like he was on his way out. He was one foot out the door. And then that happened. And then a few months later, he sort of settles all the affairs and he's another one foot out the door. And the character of Mr. Potter, uh, a.k.a. Scrooge, Mr. Potter, boy, just a terrible, terrible person. Um (laughs) Definitely an obvious Scrooge, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This movie has heavy uh, Christmas story or uh, Christmas Carol vibes. 
Mm-hmm. Christmas, Jimmy Stewart's not running around trying to get a Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> um. um, but yeah, so then you know, Mister Potter is is threatening to start taking all the money. So he's like, I can't leave, and 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 then you know, the bank, this the uh, building and loan won't keep going unless he stays. So he sort of feels compelled to stay, and he has the opportunity to get in on the ground floor of Plastics with his friend, yeah. and he turns it down because of Mary, basically. Um, which was a little strange, but okay. I, you know, I get that. Yeah, Mary Mary is uh, an interesting character, the way that she is used throughout this film. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's a product of its time um, mm-hmm. in that respect. Oh, that's sure. That's something that maybe could have aged a little bit better, but for the story that they're trying to tell, like, I get where they're going, so I give them some leeway. Oh. Yeah, it... it it definitely fits with like the timeline, but like, you know, the fact that, Oh, he was never born means that she's a lonely spinster for yeah. the rest of her life is like, well, I mean, there was probably other guys. Yeah. She probably liked. And, and it's, it's interesting because in the short story, she actually does get um, married to someone else, has kids with somebody else. Um, so the short story is, is mostly just that last half hour of the film. Okay. Uh, it starts with George, He's uh, George Pratt, I think, instead of Bailey, but it starts with him on the bridge, and then Clarence appears, and um, then he he has the whole thing. Like, he interacts. A lot of his interactions with people are very different. Like, his mother doesn't run a boarding house, um, mm-hmm. and Mary is, re- is married to somebody else who's sort of a kind of brutish and drinks a lot, and she has a cu- couple of kids with him, and him and George don't get along. Like, it's very, it's it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, see, I would have, I would have liked that angle on it. Or even if she was like married and divorced and became kind of a pariah because of that, you know, because he he wasn't around, so she married someone else, and it didn't it didn't work out. Versus just that that felt even like a little bit rushed. He's like, and where's Mary? And they're like, and here she is walking <laughs> the streets alone. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and overall, like that last half hour it's effective because we had that first hour and a half kind of setting everything up for us. Have you been smoking grass? And, uh, you know, it's, I, I enjoy that. Um, but, uh, Mary just, I would have, if this were being written today, Mary would have a very different characterization. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I think the way we would have seen the town, change you know because it, it became a place of loose morals you know there mm-hmm. were women and and there's like there's a ton of bars and all these you know all these places um that are like loose morals you know those things which aren't shunned in the same way today it'd be interesting to see like what that would look like if there wasn't up not that i need an updated version i mean i'm sure there is like 85 updated versions yeah. you know that i could i could find um but it definitely like it it's interesting to see what stuff was of its time and, you know, have that feeling of, oh, that's a little bit like quaint, that that was the, the concern of what was going to happen to the town. While at the same time, some stuff like uh, Mr. Potter, it's like, yeah, uh, he's Scrooge for sure, but he's also a current day capitalist. Like that, that, that kind of character uh, is very true to life even today. Mm-hmm. So one of the things was... Most uh, most of the time, this movie is kind of universally loved. Um, but mm-hmm. there were a couple of uh, people at the time and then more currently that are like, eh, the sentiment's a little bit off. And 
um, you know, oh, Pottersville is more indicative of what real life would be like, and they're trying to have this sort of fictionalized or, or idealized version of small-town America, but that was the point of the movie. Right. So that never really bothered me. Um, but yeah, I just want, I kind of wanted to mention that because, like, yeah, this is something like 95%, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, um, it's got, I mean, it's you know, considered a classic. It's, it's lauded now. It's a movie for sure with its flaws, but because of its, its status, um, and because of its age, because of its status now, like as a movie that is kind of synonymous with the Christmas season, while again, only having Christmas Eve in it for about yeah. 20 minutes. Um, it, uh, boy, I forgot a little bit the train that I was on there. Oh. Um, but I think like, it's just, it, we're able to forgive the, whatever parts might be a little bit hokey. Like when he is talking to, I can't remember the name of the, the woman who's like the, the hot shot, all the men love. And he asks her out before he goes to see Mary and she turns him down in the whole town is suddenly around him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> laughing about it. Um, which is very odd and a little, it, and a little ridiculous, but because of what this movie is, it's like, Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> the whole town was listening in on their conversation and they were like yep. in the middle of the street too. Like people moved towards that location. Yeah. They're, they're in the median of the street, uh, yes. which was great. There's that. And there's also like, while they're doing the Charleston dance and the door, the floor starts to open up. They're the only ones, George and Mary, yeah, the only no. ones that don't notice it. Like you would feel that floor moving obviously. And no one's like, Hey, Hey, you two. <laughs> yeah. The floor's nope. opening. No Maybe. one taps okay. them on the shoulder. Nope. Nothing. There um, you go. There was some really cool kind of improv moments in this movie too that made the final oh. cut. Uh, one thing I do want to mention before I forget, it's actually went movie went through three directors of photography. Um, oh jeez. The the first guy uh, was fired early on, and so they reshot a lot of his stuff. Uh, but the the guy that replaced him, at one point they were shooting a scene, and Frank Capra said, "Hey, can we reshoot this?" And the guy's like, "No," because and the sun was going down. And he's like, "No, I can't." And so he turned to his assistant. He's like, can you shoot the scene? And the guy goes, oh, yes, I've heard I can. this before, I think. Yeah. And so that's why there's two directors of photography listed because the one guy got fired halfway through. Um, <laughs> so uh, apparently Frank Capra was a little tough to work with. Um, yeah. He seems like he has uh, very strict expectations of crew, but then like performances, he would let stuff go. So there's that scene where, um, where George and Mary are throwing rocks at the old house. And mm -hmm. Mary picks up the rock and she throws it. And so they'd set everything up and they actually had like a marksman ready to shoot the window out. Huh. And, and Donna Reed just nailed the window cause she played baseball in high school. And so she just threw a rock right <laughs> through the window and I was nice. like, okay, Good that's awesome. Her. Um, yeah. the, uh, one of my, f one of the funnier moments in this is when, uh, they're having the party for Harry after he comes back from college. Yeah. And it's also like his, you know, celebrating his marriage and all of that. And Uncle right. Billy is leaving. And Uncle Billy is great because he's just forgetful about everything. But in this scene, he's just sloshed. He is hammered. <laughs> and he does yeah. the whole, points him in the direction and says, walk straight that way. And you see Uncle Billy walk off camera. And then you hear him like trip over a trash can. <laughs> that wasn't the plan for that scene. Um, That's great. That was a pro uh, like a prop guy dropped a thing of props and it made a bunch of noise and so the actor playing uncle billy ad-libbed the i'm all right i'm just fine and because uh, jimmy stewart cool. started laughing and so they ended up using it and the story goes 
that Capra decided to use the take in the final cut and gave the stagehand a bonus of 10 bucks for improving the sound. Huh. Well, whether that story, yeah, whether that story is apocryphal or not, I don't care. It's a great story, and I want it to be true because that's just great. Like <laughs> he drops a bunch of props, and they happen to get caught on microphone. Um, yeah. There was also in the bank run scene, which is a, a really powerful scene. In this because this was yeah. 1946, so this wasn't that long after the Depression, and bank runs were still. That's not a thing we worry about very much now, Mm-mm. but they were a huge worry back then of banks not having your money. And during that scene, um, the, the character who comes up and says, I want 1750. So in the script, it was $17. And the story goes that right before they shot that Frank Capra went to her and said, ask for, you know, 1750 and said, give the oddball number. And the the leaning over the counter to, to kiss her on the cheek was uh, Jimmy Stewart, like improvising at that moment because he was flustered by her saying that. Because he was preparing for her to say seventeen, and she said seventeen fifty, and it like threw him off. So like, I love stuff like yeah. that because it it gives more like humanity to these scenes too. It's yeah, it's very genuine. And going with a specific number because we were going with like you know two forty two, and the other guy was like a hundred something. And this uh, then somebody comes up like twenty bucks. Okay, and then she comes up and she has this exact because there's going to be that person in the crowd mm-hmm. who's going to know like I should be able to get by okay on seventeen fifty. Um, and it, it, it makes it feel a little bit more genuine. Because, um, mm. yeah, some people are going to come in for big numbers. Some are going to just be like, oh, let's round it up. Some people are like, this is exactly what I'll need. Um, and, and, you know, good on Stuart. They, you know, they probably shot it again, and he had, like, a, a, an appropriate rea- – well, I don't know how expensive film – well, $3 million. They probably reshot a couple of times. Um, yeah, I think I had, read they had the money for it. I think I read they went through like three hundred thousand feet of film or something for this. Like Oof. just a silly amount of film. Um it's it's crazy. So one that they didn't reshoot, and it was actually because of Jimmy Stewart, is when he's sitting in Martini's bar, um, contemplating everything and, and keeps looking at his life insurance policy and drinking and he starts praying. If you notice mm. that close up, that push in on his face is a little grainy. And that was because that reaction was was real out of Jimmy Stewart. Like, he started breaking down. And this, this is how the story goes. So, again, it's all a grain of salt, but I like to believe it. Um, the camera was set up far away. They were getting a wide shot. And he has this genuine kind of moment. And Frank Capra was like, that was amazing. Can you do that again? And Jimmy Stewart's like, uh-uh. That was, I, nope. I, can't, I can't redo that. So he actually had to go in and blow oh, up no. the film. And like crop it and blow it up to get that close up that he wanted, mm-hmm. and so that's why that's a little bit grainy. But like that again, he he got what he wanted out of that scene, and using the technology he had at his uh, at his fingertips to get the close up and get that, and that's mm-hmm. a powerful moment because that yeah. is that is the moment where George Bailey loses all hope. Yeah, and, he's gonna go toss himself in a river. You know, that's, and I didn't expect, because I knew, obviously, he was, like, trying to kill himself. I didn't expect they were going to use the word suicide, because that felt fairly taboo for a movie filmed and, like, made in the 70s. So I, I have to imagine, like, because my expectations were like, well, they're not going to talk about suicide. Uh, then when that happens, it was like, oh, okay, that's a little bit impactful, because you're actually naming it. So I have to imagine in the 1940s, similar idea. Um, I can't think of a ton of movies that, you know, that I've seen that from that era that seriously talk about depression in in a way of like you reach a, such a low point 
you're going to kill yourself in what's a feel good Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, I know, you know, I know there's probably plenty of stuff, maybe some like Hitchcock stuff and all that, where stuff, stuff like that will be talked about, but not in this. Well, so are you familiar with the Hayes code in film? Oh yes. Okay. Oh yes. So, so that's something that like the Hayes code wouldn't let you do, but there's also yeah. Potter in this movie gets away with theft and has no repercussions. And that was pretty like that was, shouldn't have happened according to the, the way the Hayes code at all. Like he should have had mm-hmm. some sort of fallout and comeuppance for it because he steals eight grand and yep. nothing happens to him. Well, and I love that too, that the cops are immediately there. Um, where it's like, there's not been an investigation. Mm-hmm. There has been no, no, nothing is determined if he actually took the money or not. Uh, Mr. Potter has just like the influence to get this guy arrested for, for hearsay. You know, um, I thought that, that, that amused me yeah. a bit. Uh, not to say like you wouldn't see something similar, like very corrupt businessman, um, runs the town, does some corrupt things, but it was just funny to me that like, well, here's the guy who's going to investigate you. He's going to find out if you did it or not. And also here's the cops who are going to arrest you doesn't matter if you did it or not. And here's the reporters that are going to write about it in the newspaper yeah. as well. I love I love when he's running around the house and they're like taking pictures of him and stuff. <laughs> they're so confused. They're like, this guy is... I mean, I imagine being like those three or four men and they're sitting there waiting for him to show up and he comes in the house elated and ecstatic uh-huh. and talking about how he's going to prison and it's the greatest thing ever and then just ignoring them to <laughs> run off for his kids. And like, uh-huh. that had to have his been so who- confusing. His kids who, like, an hour earlier, he was like, I wish you were never born. <laughs> yeah. I hate you, children. Well, to three of them, anyway. He never, he, he was never mean right. to Zuzu. Right, the one that was upstairs sick. Well, she'd been down there, you know. That's true. She would have gotten caught in, caught in the crossfire for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, like, one thing, because uh, with the ending, then you have, like, everybody come in, giving the money, and yeah. they uh, give, you know, even, like, the, the auditor guy who is going to, um, is going to, investigate him gives him like a dollar um, yeah which was and like that you know the other guy rips up the warrant but i i don't have quite the strong reaction as i used to of like crowd scenes in movies during when covid was like at its peak but the amount of people in his house <laughs> in that scene i was like oh boy it's always that that scene has always felt claustrophobic anyway because it's uh, extremely it's, even without covid i would i would feel like oh yeah it's just so many people packed in that house and the door's still wide open, and he's already complaining that it's drafty, so it's colder than hell in there. Uh, um, but yeah, that scene is great, where everybody's just coming in, dumping money on the table. Yeah, you got so just much baskets money full of money. Yeah, they just they, this is, I, and that's what you did at the time too. Like you didn't always mm-hmm. keep all your money in the bank. Well, and I, and I see that you know the investigation guy there, and I know like like you said, you know if it's cash, it's whatever. Um, because, you know, if he doesn't put it in the bank, they're not going to tax it. If he just has the 8000 it's it's fine. Um, but just like this idea that they're dumping all this money in front of an auditor. Yeah. Uh, who maybe was like, wait a minute. Hold on that's, now. That's a lot of cash. Um, another, uh, a small cast member I did want to mention, um, and Ace Tigers brought it up in the chat uh, also, but um, the kid that's talking to Mary when they're at the graduation thing, that was Alfalfa mm-hmm. from... Uh, from uh, the Little Rascals. From Little Rascals. Yeah, um, Carl Alfalfa Switzer, and uh, yeah, that was him. So I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that ending. I, I love. 
seeing that stuff. Yeah, it's it's fun to see little things like that. Um, it's it's like an elf when you see uh, uh, Ralphie from A Christmas Story. So I was like, hey, yeah, there's Ralphie. Yep. Um, so one of the things with this movie, when you have to, when you watch it now, you have to sort of because again, it's set in 1946 in the 30s and all that. You have to adjust the monetary amounts, right? But mm-hmm. and so uh, simple things like the scene where he's in Potter's office and they're, uh, Potter's offering him the job. Uh, he talks about he makes forty five dollars a week, mm-hmm. which adjusted for today would be about forty five to forty six thousand dollars a year. Sure, sure. Um, when he gets offered twenty thousand dollars a year for three years, yeah. that is somewhere in the neighborhood of about three hundred eighty thousand dollars a year. That he's yeah, being I had a reaction in today's money. <laughs> Yeah, I got a reaction at 20,000 my brain was like, wait a minute, this is, you know, 1930s, 1940s, that is like, that is a, a fortune. Even like today, if someone offered me, not 20,000 as a job, uh, but if someone were to be like, hey, here's $20,000, that would drastically change my life. Well, even and, like that $8,000, you know? Yeah, even, even with having to adjust money for it being a 1940s movie, there's the scene earlier where George says, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? And, and I just thought, yes, I do. And it's a yes, long time. I'm well aware still. of that fact. Yeah, so, I'll let you know when I get there, Jimmy. Yep, exactly. Uh, I'm not there yet, but, uh, you know, maybe one day. Yeah. Um, it's just weird to think that. Like, And they were buying houses. They were building houses for $5,000. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was that was an interesting one because that idea of, like, how that's done – we don't know as well as like people probably did back then. So when that scene came out, like my girlfriend that I was watching with, like both of us were a little bit like, wait a minute, how does this all work? Like, why is their money all split up? Uh, But you know, it, it makes sense, but it's just, it's something back then people would have known Mm -hmm. And today. I should know. Um, but I just don't. Yeah. I don't know it like clearly. Yeah. It was, it was a very different time in the way banking was done too. Mm -hmm. Um, and you could get away with that. So, you know, it's not that dissimilar from how banks are now. I mean, you go into your right. your local branch, they don't they don't have your money. They just have right. some. Depending what, on what you're taking out, they have like a certain amount uh that they can can give to you at any certain time. Mm-hmm. But that amount is like strictly regulated. And, you know, it's not just the transactions people are doing in and out all day. Like they know specifically, here's how much money you are supposed to have. Yep. Yeah, because th- this is all pre. This movie is all pre uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Group or FDIC, whatever the hell that mm-hmm. stands for. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Where they where I they insure your money? Right. Uh, yes, I do know. Don't nobody call my <laughs> parents. Um, we don't talk about the Great Depression. Yeah, and it, it's weird that that wasn't more of a plot point in the movie because it kind of was, but at the same time, like, sure, George didn't make a ton of money, but his town did all right through all of that. I mean, they were able to build houses and, and he was able to get people out of those Potter, those Potter's fields, those slums that, that Potter was keeping people in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. During uh, all of that, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk all about, um, yeah. People who are basically in the small town living still kind of like paycheck to paycheck, but he's helping them to like, to get out of this poverty. Um, and, and Ace Tigress, you're, you're right. It is said after what I was more alluding to is like the amount of money they have isn't super fluid in the sense that they have 
whatever people have deposited and taken out, it's mm-hmm. they figure out uh, how much money like they would have they would have had. Uh, and un, un, unimportant for me to re- return to that. Um, people aren't like, yeah, I'm, I'm tuning in for the hot financial discussions. <laughs> uh, well, oh, really, you're boy. here to talk about hot guardian angels who did not look anything like I thought they were going to. Oh yeah, Clarence. Clarence is. Uh... <laughs> I love. I'm so Clarence. surprised that this movie started with a conversation between Joseph and God. <laughs> yeah. That not knowing that was coming, I was like, "Oh, okay, that's what we're starting with." And and I like how. So we've got this idea that uh, that angels were once people, um, mm-hmm. and they die, they become angels. He's an angel second class. But I love that conversation between Joseph and God, where he's just like, "So who's up? Who's up to get sent down?" He's like, uh, "It's the clockmaker." Like. It's this idiot that doesn't really know what the hell he's doing. Yeah, thanks God and Joseph for all yeah. your infinite wisdom and grace. <laughs> and you're like, ugh, we'll send this loser. Like George is and, important, and, but not that important. So right, we'll just send we'll send this guy. Um, and they're even like, this is like the biggest night of his life. Uh, but it's like, let's send the guy we don't like very much. Let's <laughs> prank him. And uh, and there was also with that, the, I I really enjoyed when Clarence was on Earth. And they walk out of the bar, and he suddenly stops and is like, "No, I didn't have anything to drink." And he's <laughs> yeah. like talking to to God and Joseph. Yes, um, but oh, we aren't was... like privy to that side of the conversation. Yeah, we get we get half of it, which is great. It's the same thing when the when he says, "You know, I wish I was never born," and then the door blows open, and he's like, "Oh, you don't have to make a big deal out of it," and closes the door like he's yelling at them for for making a huge production out of that. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny because Clarence is only on screen for like in the last half hour and not even the whole thing. He's only there no, for about 15 minutes. He's barely there. And I was expecting, I don't know why, in my head, just like that more soft-spoken, real kind of like, hello, I'm your guardian angel. Mm-hmm. And there's this guy, it's like, what's up? I'm your guardian angel. Let's get me some wings. <laughs> every time uh, every time a bell rings, which means constantly, yeah. uh, <laughs> angels are getting their wings. Yep. And uh, and, and I, I love him because he's just like, I want my wings and I'm reading Tom Sawyer. Like, Right, right. He's like, I don't really care about you that much. I just got to, like, get you to be cool with where we're at, where you're at in life, and then I'll get my wings. And according (laughs) to the trivia, um, the actor that played him, uh, who was, my brain, um, he, uh, Henry Travers, was uh, almost Potter and then almost Uncle Billy before being uh, Clarence. It's tough for me to view him as Potter now. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. just because I've seen this movie too many times to think of anybody other than Lionel Barrymore as, as Mr. Potter. But Clarence just, like, he's he's almost a bumbling kind of idiot. And he works so much better that way. Uh, but I love, like, mm-hmm. his innocence, too. When he's in the bar, and it's this loud bar and everything's going on, and he's, like, trying to think of what he wants. And he starts talking uh-huh. about a flaming rum punch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then eventually settles yeah. on uh, mulled wine. Right, that's not that's not the kind of drink you you get around here, bub. Yeah, you're not, you're not gonna get that. Also, I love the uh, uh, Nick's voice, the uh, the actor who. Oh yeah, was an actor and producer, the and basically, bartender. yeah, he he took that role so he could get money to buy like baseball tickets. Huh. Was uh, was nice. his whole thing behind it? Uh, but he had he had that very like radio announcer like smooth voice and yeah. It's very, very nice. Um, 
I, I also a quote from this movie I knew every time an uh, angel every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings that's mm-hmm. fairly famous for this film yeah. um, but it did remind me and I hadn't thought about this in forever in Rocco's modern life uh, there's an episode where Rocco loses his gas cap and he's spending <laughs> the whole episode trying to find his gas cap and at the end uh, there is a there's a, a kid sitting on his dad's shoulder and he's like my teacher says every time uh, someone finds a gas cap an angel gets his wings and the the parent goes hey your teacher's full of snot <laughs> uh, which did make me wonder how how Zuzu's teacher, I think it was Zuzu, um, his clear favorite, uh, was like was said like, oh, a teacher says like, did a teacher go through this too? <laughs> did a teacher have a depressed moment? Uh, was well, it was it when George Bailey called them earlier? Right, exactly. The way George treated that teacher, uh, I could see it. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Uh, okay. So here's another one. So so we talked about how there's a dun- bunch of different versions. This movie went through like a lot of revisions to the script. Um, cause I mentioned how the original short was quite a bit different. One of the original drafts of the script didn't have a Mr. Potter. That character mm-hmm. didn't exist. And when George she sees this different reality, George has become this powerful and corrupt politician. And the, oh. the climax of the film was actually a fight between good George and bad George. Um, well, now I'm in and duking it out. Yeah. And the evil George Bailey was thrown from the bridge at the end of the movie. Jeez. And all this stuff, like, I don't know how they would have pulled that off back then. I mean, it would have they they would have done a lot of you know reverse shot body double stuff, and it would have looked right. They would have chucked a guy off of a bridge, not quite as far, yeah, but just um, filmed it in such a way. But having two versions of Jimmy Stewart would have been very interesting to see um, back then. Yeah, because we've made great strides. Um, you know, Orphan Black, oh, uh, yeah. the new Alien movies with uh, with what's his name, David. Um, like those can all look flawless being on screen together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even like the nineties, it was like, you have to stand on opposite sides of the screen. Oh yeah. Uh, you cannot, you cannot reach your hand over because yep. <laughs> that's just, it's not going to work. There's an you invisible can never line. Touch the other you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting because I really think not having the Potter character would fundamentally change the movie because he sort of is absolutely he is the antithesis of George in so many different ways. And that scene in his office is such an important moment for George because he has an out. He could very easily have money, have status, be able to do what he wants to do. And he, he gives that up yet again through all it's the closest he gets to taking the the, kind of the brass ring, but he still eschews it for, for what's better for the people of the town and, and all these people that he's helped over time. Yeah. And that comes from his father, which is why I also love that scene at the dinner table with the two of them, because you really see how George honestly cares about his father and kind of, even though he doesn't want to get stuck in the ho- in the small town in a dingy little office, he fully understands what his dad has done throughout his life and how good of mm-hmm. a person he is. That's why yeah. I love that, you know, you know, pop, I love you type of thing. And then immediately turns to the, the one woman, Annie, did you hear that? And she's got her ear to the door. I heard it. It's about time when you lunkheads said it. Oh well, yeah. You can't say, you can't express emotions uh, in any way. Right. Back then. No, um, certainly not men. But nice. Nice. Yeah. No, no. Nice to have that moment. Um, I mean, it is, you know, it really speaks to the character of George Bailey that he doesn't want to do these things. Um, he, you know, he has all these goals in his own life, but he's like, 
if I don't do this, nobody will. And how mm. can I live with myself if I let these people lose their homes or go hungry? Um, you know, at first he's doing it out of this sense of obligation that he himself doesn't like, but it's like, I need to do this. And then towards the end, he sees the impact of, of what he's done. And, you know, George Bailey, the richest man in town. It's a, it's a saccharine moment, but it, it really lands at the end of the movie there. It does. And, and it, the, the turn of it, I think, is that scene with Potter in his office because Potter, like, nails George. And not only does he nail who George is, but he says it to him in a way that makes George think about it, where he's like, you hate your job, you know, all these negative things about him from the from the perspective and it's George kind of contemplating like I do that is true I don't like this but then he he has to have that realization moment too right after mm-hmm. that so yeah I really really enjoyed that it's just this is a, a good a feel-good movie and it makes sense why it's such a, a holiday classic because it gives you those feelings right right whether it's and, yeah. saccharine sweet or not mm-hmm. no I you know I I wasn't thinking um, I wasn't thinking I was going to hate this movie going into it having never seen it uh, it was just more the question of like, okay, is my life like fundamentally changed now that like, you know, now that I'm going to be seeing this movie. Sure. Um, and, and I don't think that it was, I think there's some jokes and quotes, uh, from the Simpsons and many <laughs> other parts of my life that now I'm like, Oh, that's what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I can see that. I, you know, I would watch it again. Um, but not sure it's, you know, this is going to be on like the. Uh, all right, this is rotation every single year as some movies like Elf are. You know, sure. that, that really, for me, because of what I mentioned earlier, really has that feeling. But I would love to go see this next year. Alamo is probably going to show it in the theater. I would love to go see this in a theater. I would love to see what this movie is like with a bunch of people who have that love for it. And it's probably going to feel so different and be a little bit more heartwarming for me. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, you don't have a connection to it to make it a rotation every year type of thing. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, you can understand, you can kind of see why why people would make that connection to this movie, why it would be something that would, would do that. Yeah, so. yeah. If you grew up watching this movie, you know, it's it's that movie you know all the parts of, you know all the scenes of, you, yeah. you feel for George Bailey, because he, he is a very emotional and sympathetic character. And you feel for his family, and Mary is, you know, a saint. Mm-hmm. Like a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, and just like all this stuff where it's like, yeah, I totally get why people absolutely love this movie. And I, I very much uh, in, enjoyed it myself. Yeah, and it's got that great moment. You know, it's got the line of, you know, do you want me to, do you want the moon? I'll give you the moon. I'll throw yeah, a lasso I'll, around I'll it and moon. pull it down here. Um, yeah. their, their honeymoon is another one of those kind of great moments where it's like, that's just such a cool thing that makes no sense whatsoever. But at the same time, I just absolutely adore the idea of like, she sees the writing on the wall and knows what's going on. So she kind of, uh, you know, covertly um, sets this thing up with Bert and Ernie, um, who, by the way, were not, according to people involved in Sesame Street, Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street were not named after these characters. It was a coincidence. Mm. Interesting. Um, Even though Jim Henson loved this movie, one of the uh, co-producers or co-writers early on in Sesame Street was like, yeah, you know, no, Jim Jim really liked that movie, but he didn't have a memory for stuff like that. So it may have been a subconscious thing at best. Um, right, right. I was but, like, oh, there's a pair of people. Uh, Bert and Ernie. Okay, great. 
Yeah. And the names just go, go so well together. Um, but I just love yeah. that idea of like her setting all that stuff up and then putting the, the stuff on the um, windows to look like mm-hmm. all the destinations they wanted to go to. Yeah. Like, that's very sweet. It is. Um, and, and you know, too, I, one thing I think that makes this movie work as well is that, uh, George Bailey is a great human being. Um, when, when he, it push comes to shove, mm-hmm. but he's also pretty selfish. Um, like he, you know, he's not excited to see Mary. She makes this wonderful art for him and he just got, doesn't really care. And he tells her like, ah, I don't want to marry anybody. You see, like, yeah. uh, and in other parts where he has to save the town, he does it. But there's always that moment of like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to do it when he's yelling at his family and his kids for like ruining his life, I guess. Um, it makes that if he was just like, oh, he always does the right thing. And then he has that moment at the end of like, see how much you've affected everyone's life. It would feel like it's really rubbing his ego, which, you know, kind of is a little bit. Um, but if you take like a universally great character and then are just like, you're so great. I don't think for the audience that connects. No, I think it's uh, because it's like, look, you have your flaws, but look at all these things you've done for people. That makes you uh, this town's you know richest man, like the greatest person they know. Yeah, I think that's that's what makes this movie work 70 years later is that George Bailey is in, inherently a good person, but you're right, he's selfish. He has things he wants. He had this idea of what he wanted from when he was a kid and he never got that. He never got to do that that adventure, that thing that he wanted because you know, from from even in a young age, I mean, he didn't get to go to college right out of high uh, out of high school. He had to wait 4 years. And then he waits the four years. He does his time. He saves his money up working for his dad only to not get to go because he has to take over for his father. So he sends his brother instead and his brother kind of gets to live the, a little bit of the life that he was hoping for. And his brother becomes a war hero and his brother gets to do all this kind of stuff. And here's George and he's feeling like I just got left here. But every time he tries to, to be no. the selfish guy, he just doesn't have that last little bit in him. To, to, mm-hmm. to tell other people, you know, screw you, I'm going to get mine. He just yeah, doesn't he have still, that. He still has to grow in who he is as a person mm-hmm. um, to, like, fit the mold of how he is viewed and to see how he is viewed, you know, because he, he views it like, oh, okay, I've got to save them again. Great. Yep. And their viewing is like, we would be so lost without George Bailey. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't see that. He doesn't see, like, the the thing. And, you know... This is a thing that I could pick apart where it's like, oh, everything that happened in life still happened exactly. <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart or uh, George Bailey, you know, had some influence in the moments, but didn't really impact if they went to the the lake that day or, uh, you know, if, if that guy was working and accidentally poisoned the medicine. It's like assuming all those things happen. And so he sees it like, well, if you never saved your brother, which I can maybe write off as like the trick of the angel, you know, if it really showed you what it'd be like with George Bailey was never born, it might not be terrible because, you know, you're, you're one human being. Maybe someone else would have stepped up. But like, here's a version where it's like, you need to see the impact that you specifically have had. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, is because he does these things out of a kindness. He doesn't do them for himself. It's not right. He's not looking throughout the entirety of the movie. He's never looking for adulation from people to do these things. He's not, it's not like a a thing where, you know, I'm going to help these people because it's going to make me feel better. He's just doing it because it's the kind thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. If I don't, who will? Exactly. So yeah, this, if you haven't seen this movie before, like 
just watch it. It's it's worth yeah. it. It's longer than I remembered. I did not remember it's two it being hours. two hours. Yeah. I kept yeah, thinking this was like th- hour and a half and yeah. almost but but I thought so too. <laughs> so it's it's two hours and ten minutes long. It's a long movie, but it's paced pretty well. It's got some Yeah. It's got some good yeah, moments y- in it. Yeah, if you if you haven't seen it, I would recommend watching it. Um, getting around to seeing it, you know, it's not hard to find, especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. Or go to like a theater that is a special showing, um, provided that your theater does safe health practices at the current yeah. moment. Um, but uh, yeah, me saying like, well, I, I've seen it now and it's not going to go into my rotation is not at all saying like I regret and I could have gone on the rest of my life. I, we had a great conversation. I enjoyed watching it. Uh, my girlfriend watched it with me and absolutely loved it. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that I, I finally got around to it. Yeah. And also like it's old Hollywood and those movies have yeah. a certain You're charm have a love to that. You yeah, know what? definitely. And I mean, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, I love Lionel Barrymore in this. His Mr. Potter is just mm-hmm. so like, just pitch perfect. Everyone's, everyone's right on for their characters. Also, he gets a line like this. I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either. So that makes it all even. It's just awesome. I love how slowly people like aged. It's like you know, five years would go by, people would look like pretty much the same, and then like two years would go by, and like suddenly gray hair. And I know that's like a little bit realistic, but some of like the aging definitely happened in leaps and bounds. Yeah, well, Jimmy Stewart was thirty-seven, thirty-eight when this movie was made, and he was playing playing, eighteen-year-old. Well, he's playing George from like twenty-four to thirty-eight, somewhere in that range. Uh, Donna Reed was 25, and she was playing from 18 to 35-year-old um, character. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, this is definitely a movie worth seeing. And that, that line uh, is just one of many great lines in this movie, too. Um, it, it, yeah. it, is, it is a little schmaltzy. It gets a little cheesy yeah. at times, but it's a holiday movie. But sometimes movie. it's what you want. Yeah, exactly. It's what you, it's what Absolutely. You now, speaking of nostalgia, you do a show... All centered around yes, nostalgia. I do. Um, yes, Hit Me One More Time uh, is a nostalgia reflection podcast where we look at the things that we loved when we were younger and ask the question, is this good? Um, we had a sort of an accidental hiatus. Uh, I explain why in our most recent episode, uh, but it's a really great episode about Spider-Man Unlimited. Uh, so if people want to go check that out and check out our back catalog, just find something you recognize and go from there. Also, uh, coming out Christmas Day or around Christmas, I am also discussing this movie on my other podcast, Movie Go Round. We picked this for our, uh, for our holiday film. So if you awesome. want to hear uh, some other perspectives on it, I'll be talking about that with Brett Stewart and Nicole Davis. That's those both are shows definitely worth checking out. I've been on hit me one more time. I love uh, how you guys do that because you don't just love on something. Um, You're you're able to look at it kind of objectively like this isn't great, but I can see why I liked it as a kid. One of my favorites was Jackie Chan adventures. Um, You guys talked about that because I love watching that, but I also know like, (laughs) you know, it's okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, we're very honest about how we think that it shakes out. And our, our Christmas episode, not talking about this, but we are talking about Jingle All the Way. And, <laughs> oh, boy, that is an episode you, you want to... After you listen to this, uh, go over to the feed and see if, see if it's up there yet and give it a listen. It's, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I can't wait to hear you guys talk about that one. Because, whew, it's, boy. It's wild. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you, David, for being on. This was fun. I'm glad that I got to show you It's a Wonderful Life. 
I got to. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I think I texted you either very early this year or like last year and was like, we need to do this movie because it's one that I've always missed. So I'm glad we finally made the commitment and yes. got it done. Absolutely. Um, so definitely check out Hit Me One More Time. Check out Movie Go Round. Those are both great shows. Uh, David, always a pleasure. Um, oh, thanks for having me. Always great to be here. And uh, and this show um, comes out on Wednesdays as a podcast, or you can watch uh, recording live on Sundays, usually uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time. We recorded a little bit earlier this week. Not a problem. Uh, it's at twitch.tv slash Travis and tvstravis.com to find uh, the show's podcast. It's everywhere. I mean, if you search for what you haven't yeah. seen, you should find it in Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever. Um, and if you do um, want to help support the show, I do have a, a Kofi page now, ko-fi.com slash Travis. You can, you can help me out, buy me a cup of coffee there. Um, I really, really yeah. appreciate that. Uh, so support next, Support this man. Please. Uh, so next week, um, coming back to the show, is Amy Frost. And we are going to be watching uh, a movie... You'll just have to wait until next week and find out what that is. Um, Ooh, what a tease. Yeah, so that'll be fun. Uh, and that'll that'll end our calendar 2021 year. So I'm looking forward to that. But until then, just remember to enjoy your movies. And it's Christmas time, so holiday season. Spend some time with your family and be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>